0: welcome back or welcome to the single track podcast i'm your host finn melanson and this is another episode of the long run archives where i am joined by my usual co-host brett hornig as well as special guest jeff colt to talk about all sorts of interesting topics across the trail and ultra running universe before we get started though this episode is brought to you by kodiak cakes as well as inside tracker for kodiak cakes use code singletrack15 to get 15 percent off your next order and for Inside Tracker, go to insidetracker.com backslash singletrack to get 20% off your next order. With Kodiak Cakes, as I have mentioned in previous episodes, I am super stoked, super, super stoked about this partnership, almost as stoked as Chris Mako when he secured a similar sponsorship with them back in the famous Mako Show days of YouTube. But seriously, if you're like me, your weekend long run is followed up with a big stack of pancakes, And let me tell you, Kodiak cakes, they taste great, they're whole grain, they come with extra protein, and if they aren't already, they should be the centerpiece of your post long run pancake situation because they are for me. But hey, if pancakes aren't your thing, that's cool too. They also make great oatmeal, which I have incorporated into my weekday breakfast routine. Also, Kodiak is based in Park City, Utah, and there's just something cool about being aligned with a local company. So... Again, use that promo code SINGLETRACK15 on their website checkout to get 15% off your next order. Second, Inside Tracker. This company is awesome. As I've said, you get your blood drawn, you answer some lifestyle questions, you upload the data, and they analyze the results, and they provide an action plan, which gives you the most accurate, personalized recommendations about where you can improve when it comes to what you should be eating and supplementing with, so you can solve that critical diet part of the training equation. I like to think of it like having my own personal data-driven nutritionist in an app. So as I mentioned, go to insidetracker.com backslash singletrack. Using that link is going to get you 20% off your next order. And yeah, I am taking my own Inside Tracker test later this month. I look forward to sharing the results with all of you, again, just to provide insight into how I personally use their platform to guide my diet and ultimately to reach My training and racing goals. So there you have it. Kodiak Cakes and Inside Tracker. Thanks for your support. Let's get on with the episode. All right, we're back with another episode of the Long Run Archives. I think this is the sixth edition. I'm joined by my normal partner in crime, Brett Horning, but we also have a special guest, the one and only Jeff Easy Colt. Jeff, how's it going?
1: It's going well. Thanks for asking, Fan.
0: And you're coming off Western States. You had a super strong performance, and I think a lot of listeners will remember you from our post black canyon golden ticket talk and we also caught up before at western states and you're a fellow super fan of the east coast too so it's awesome yeah but yeah how was how was western
1: uh it was awesome i i think i told you i was gonna set out and run a pace race and that go around it kind of nipped me in the butt because i ran the pace i wanted to run and i ended up 11th instead of top 10 uh so that can that can uh that can be a negative, uh, I guess, experience if uh, you run the exact pace and everyone else is a good day, but all in, it was, a it was an awesome experience.
0: One quick question before I go to Brett, do you have any intention of, uh, rolling the dice again next year for a golden ticket and taking another strike at Western States? I'm
1: kind of hoping that the dice roll in my favor in the lottery. That would make my life a lot nicer. Um, I'm not sure about, uh, chasing the golden ticket all of next winter, um, and building my whole calendar around that. So still thinking through it, but there there are a lot of races out there. I'm definitely going to return to Western States at some point, but who knows if it'll be 2023.
0: And Brett, what's up in your world? I know you were just at the, uh, at the track championships in Eugene. So tell me about that.
2: Yeah, I was, uh, got to go up to the world championships up in Eugene. Um, I came back with COVID. So that's really exciting. Um, apologies in advance if I'm coughing for the next hour and a half, but man, it was really cool to see just like all of the world's best athletes, you know, basically like, you know, like in my backyard, I mean, as a three hour drive to get up to Eugene and um, it was really cool. Like it, it really was kind of a small town feel for a world championships. And, you know, I think there was almost a lot of negative press going into that, Uh, but kind of seeing how a lot of the athletes were interacting with each other and how close knit everything was because all the athletes were staying in the dorms on campus for the most part. And they had, you know, dining halls open and everyone was eating and hanging out together. Um, it it just made for such a, uh, like more kind of family style type vibe instead of, you know, tradition. like in the last few worlds, it was, you know, you would stay with your country in a particular hotel, you would get on the bus, you would bus to the stadium, or you'd bus to wherever you're going to go practice, you do it, and then you leave. Uh, up in Eugene, you know, everyone was there pretty much the whole time. So even in the stadium, too, we're walking around and, uh, you know, the one of the days we were up there, the men had competed completed a uh, high jump the night before, but they were just all back out there in the stands watching the ladies high jump. So, you know, we're standing up there watching ladies high jump and I look behind me and it's the Italian guy who got fourth and he's just watching it there now as a fan. I'm just like, that's, that's super cool.
1: I heard Travis Scott was there. Um,
2: yeah. He's a big I track and, and field fan. I did not see him, but I definitely heard he was there. And um, yeah. And, and you know, a lot, the big question was like, Oh, how much did you get paid? to come and, you know, show up. And, you know, his answer was like, I just, I just like track. I just wanted to see, you know, running, you know,
0: We got to give two shout outs before we dive into this episode's agenda and some of the debate. Uh, last archives episode, I announced that I had some medical difficulties that now prevent me from regularly consuming caffeine. And uh, I let it be known. I lit the beacons that I need some decaf coffee in my life. And we had two, fans of the show that happened to be roasters one from loyal coffee one from prescription coffee i haven't had the chance to try the loyal one yet but i tried the placebo one from from prescription it's pretty damn good and i actually so another listener to the show a guy named david hedges is a coffee aficionado he set me up with a grinder and this whole AeroPress thing and sent me down this youtube rabbit hole and now i'm like just Live in this uh, like barista lifestyle from seven a.m. to eight a.m. every morning before I get my day started. And so, anyways, shout out to Prescription, shout out to Loyal Brett. Have you tried that stuff yet? Because they sent you a bag too.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's actually great. Um, now I'm like on a mission to try all the decast from all the local roasters in the area to compare everything. But what has been my favorite so far is I do I do like a uh, like a cold brew. Um, it's like an overnight sort of thing. You let it sit for 12 hours and then you get like really, really condensed coffee and then you get to mix it like 50-50 with just uh, milk or whatever. But uh, I've been doing uh, some concentrated cold brew and some milk and then my scoop of Ovaltine and my protein powder in my post-run recovery shake. And that's like kicked the flavor up five notches for it.
0: All right. Well, let's dive into the episode here. Um, we're we're huge fans of Jeff. He's going to be a great addition to the show. And I got to give you props, Jeff, because we asked if you wanted to come on to join us for this episode and you brought like 20 ideas to the table. I think we'll probably get to 10. They're all excellent. If listeners are familiar with Pardon the Interruption, which is a classic ESPN show, we'll probably try to do like five to 10 minutes of debate on each topic and that'll be the episode. But um. The first one we have, and Jeff, I'll let you lead, is uh, our reactions to Tim Tollefson being sponsored by Old Spice. So take it away, Jeff. What do you think?
1: I think it's pretty awesome. I saw it and I I just started like laughing and not laughing at Tim, but just at the you know I think it's an indication of the the growth and um, development of ultra running. Um, you know, as athletes start to have larger social media reaches and maybe they've got great hair, uh, you know, hair product and beauty companies are at least noticing Tim Tolfson what he's got going on. Um, if I was with really any brand uh, in the greater sphere of running, like I would want Courtney DeWalter to promote my product. There's, there's certainly a lot of characters in our sport that I think could transcend the classic, you know, running sponsorship and kind of jump like Alex Honnold did to like, getting a, you know, getting an insurance sponsor. Um, Like what are the, what are the sponsors that are really going to actually make running a more, you know, livable and financially uh, solvent like career path. It's probably not going to be the small nutrition brands, but who knows, you know, it, it could be the, the Courtney DeWalter sponsored by Gatorade. Yeah,
2: totally. It could be. Yeah. And I mean, I I really like kind of the, like uh, the, the slippery slope towards awesome sponsors like Tim and uh, Old Spice. I mean, I, I, and, and on the small scale, you know, we could see it a lot with, you know, social media partnerships. You know, I hope I'm just assuming that we're going to see Tim Tollison and like a Old Spice Super Bowl commercial later this uh, winter. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, the first kind of thought that came to mind was, for figuring out like these brands and how they mesh with some of the top trail runners, uh, in the U S or in the world, who, who does that like come down to, to figure out like what this partnership should be like, does Tim have an agent that was like figuring this out? Like, Oh, Tim and old spy should, you know, partner up together. Like, is it really is it on Courtney to like figure out that she should have a you know million dollar contract by Haribo gummy bears, um, or is that something that more of an agent would be doing? And that's something that you know definitely is not very common at all in our sport. Like how many how many professional ultra runners have agents versus like how many NFL
0: players? That's have a great agents? question. Um, yeah,
2: so I it's, think it's, I think maybe more than. You might anticipate, like,
1: I would love to talk with an agent because I think my negotiating skills are not what they could be. I know, uh, I know Tim had a great point on that of like speaking about yourself and trying to promote yourself is pretty hard, but having someone else who can be like the backup, like, well, let me talk with my agent about Mm -hmm. that. That's like the best negotiating out you can have is like, oh, I actually can't give you an answer. I'm interested in working with your brand but you're going to now talk to my agent. Um, I think of like, I'm heavily involved in the ski space and like this free skier touring Wallace has been sponsored by Toyota Tundra for like a couple of years. And every couple of years you just see him like selling the Tundra that he got two years ago and getting a (laughs) brand new kitted out Tundra. And when we think of like athlete reach, especially on social media, but also, you know, the quality of some of the role models in our sport, I don't know why Subaru, you know, wouldn't, want to approach um some of the top tier ultra athletes who you know who are doing a lot of things right and have pretty significant uh reach in the greater outdoor community um i think the brands that are in like the greater scope which is now pretty wide of like outside you know magazine or what they have become any of those brands will likely be able to align with with an ultra runner and like tin cup whiskey has done that like pretty aggressively Yeti's done it pretty aggressively through like um work with talent groups like inkwell or whatnot where they just work with a bunch of athletes and then uh brands say hey we want this many impressions in this general sphere of space and you know that talent group will you know throw claire gallagher a yeti cooler or whatnot Mm -hmm. and say hey can you post on this like um, I don't think she's doing that anymore, but you know, that that is something that has happened. I think uh, that could be what's happening with Tim, with the uh, with the Old Spice. But marketing, you know, marketing professionals should should look to other spaces because um, you know we see a lot of running brands looking toward fashion icons to put their like you know high stack height HOKAs on a Britney Spears or whatnot. But you don't see a lot of adjacent brands to the running community looking toward, um, you know, influential people in the running space to, to reach a different audience.
0: I got two comments. The first is if I'm an athlete like yourself, Jeff, or anybody that's at the top end of the sport, looking for sponsors to help them make this more of their full-time thing. I'm super excited by this development because it means that I get to diversify my income portfolio. Like I'm no longer, In this like feudal society where I'm solely dependent on this master shoe brand and I'm like quivering in my boots every single day wondering if like one injury or one bad race is gonna send it all awry and I'm gonna lose that relationship the next day because I think a lot of these lifestyle brands probably care less about performance on race day and just more how you're using their products on a day to day basis like you know, you mentioned Tim Talisman, which is a great one with Old Spice. Hillary Allen's another good one. I she's sponsored by this van company. I think it's called David Matt Vans, and I don't know the exact details of the contract, but I just see her repping it all the time on social media, and it's the perfect thing to mesh in with the trail running lifestyle of like, you know, the dream of like I'm just gonna live out of my van all summer and go to the best races and run the best trails, and I'm not gonna be you know stuck in one specific town. So there's just so many great opportunities that come out of this that get me super excited. I mean, Corey Waltering's is another one. He's sponsored by Ford Bronco. You mentioned the Tundra. I think Mike Wardian at one point was sponsored by T-Mobile and like an airline company as well. So like there are super creative ways to go about this. And I think we're finding that just defaulting to a shoe brand. Yes, that's necessary for a lot of reasons, but you can build this like constellation of sponsors.
2: Yeah, totally. You know, and then like, you know, the other thing too is like from a brand's perspective, you know, so much of it is, you know, exposure and, you know, like if we sponsor this person, how, how many eyes will see, you know, this brand. And, you know, I feel like as the media aspect of the sport continues to grow each year, there's going to be more opportunities for more exposure for potential sponsors to be seen uh, more frequently. Uh, the you know the kind of the, I guess one of the things that kind of comes to mind is that there's no uh, there's no like sponsorship like decal logo rules in the sport of yeah. ultra running. That's what I was gonna is, say is, is awesome, and I love that because coming from like a track background and like USATF, there's a reason why there's only like six sponsors in track and field is because there's like literally an approved list of logos that you can have on your singlet when you're at. USA's even and the logo can only be as big as the swoosh that's on Finn's singlet and you can only have one. At Western States, I could theoretically have like seven different sponsors down the back of my pack. Um, you know, I could just be like you know, it could be more more NASCAR style, which I always thought was kind of awesome, just like Wonder Bread, Taco Bell, Mountain Dew.
1: Yeah. It's a little bit more like NASCAR, yeah. I, I that makes me think back to uh, Nick Simmons, like promoting his own Run Gum on his like tattoos on his biceps, um, <laughs> yeah, because exactly. trying to get around the rules of uh, of USATF. And when I first talked with On Running, Andy Andy Weeding was in the role of trying to manage US um, athletes, and he was like, "Are there any rules around this?" I was like, "No, it's no." It's like, you know, it's, it's the all wild diving. west. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. This is super good discussion. We're at the 10 minute mark, but I want to leave the audience with one thought experiment. And that is, um, if you're out there and you're a sponsored athlete and you're super good at running, you're super good at UTMB and all these prominent races in our sport, that's awesome. But maybe think about all the other things that you're either really good at or really interested in life and just think to yourself, maybe there are sponsorship opportunities in those areas that I can combine with running To make this an even more lucrative thing, not that money is always the end goal, but it's nice to be compensated for all the time you spend doing something. So that was my little soapbox there. Dream sponsor, Finn. Before we leave, oh my gosh, put me on the spot. Riverside Studios podcast hosting. (laughs) I mean, I think I think a car is hard. I think a van is hard to beat. Like I think you know, getting like you know the the Ford Econoline or whatever the model is these days, the Sprinter. Uh, the Dodge Sprinter, whatever it is, like those would be pretty awesome, like I'm just thinking about like the things that I want right now in my life, and being able to travel to a race without having to pay for hotels and stuff would be nice, so yeah, I' would take that. that Amex sponsorship for sure
1: that would be sweet. <laughs> I'm in like moving phase, I just moved to a new house, and I'm like, Dewalt, like give me all the power tools. I just want unfettered access to power tools for all nice. projects right nice. now. <laughs>
2: all Jeff's Instagram feed now is just reels of him and like the Home Depot <laughs> music in the background of like, oh yeah, look at me try yeah. and put up this drywall.
0: <laughs> That's super awesome. Um all right, next topic here, what makes a good race culture? Brett, you want to start this one?
2: Yeah. So I have I have like two like splits and I, you know, I want to hear from each of you about like what makes good race culture. Like I have big race culture and small race culture because I love both. Um, Like, yeah, I guess Western States isn't really a big race because there's less than 400 people in it. But, you know, you'd think by how big everything is leading up to it, that there'd be, you know, three or 4,000 people. So I'm going to kind of lump that into the big race culture that like like the North Face 50 mile championships when that existed. That's probably one of the other bigger ones that I've done um, where it, it really feels like, you know, like if someone came from one of like the marathon major type backgrounds and then put on an ultra race where it's, everything's massive and there's big sponsors and there's, you know, they fly out their pros to just come and talk. Um, that sort of thing I think is really cool because then you're like around people the whole time and it's super loud and it's insane. I also love the small mom and pop race culture. Like just a couple of weeks ago, I I got to help out at the Siskiyou Out and Back Runs, which is kind of our local ultra here, and we do a 15k, 50k, 50 mile, 100k, and you know we go meet up at the mountain. Um, it's pretty simple. I mean, it's really cool courses, and the emphasis is like going out and enjoying beautiful trail, um, and it's not loud and rambunctious. Um, and you finish, and you know the race directors are there to shake your hand and give your medal. You hang out at the lodge afterwards and eat some food. And like, I also love that. So I don't know if there's one that I like more than the other. And I do think both are absolutely necessary, uh, for, for the sport. Um, but what do you, what do you guys think in regards to just what you're looking for in race culture?
0: I, I want to say one thing before I go to Jeff and I'll just tell you what I don't want, because I've seen this at too many races I've been to where typically it's it's at a hundred milers, you finish the race, you get to the finish line and it's like you, your pacer, maybe one intrepid volunteer and like a ham radio guy. And it's like, you're done. And I'm just like, I just finished this like hundred mile vision quest and there's nothing here to commemorate that or to signify that I just went through this absolute journey. All I'll say before I go to Jeff is, I think it's very important to have a lot of stuff up front really as many days in the lead up as possible. And then really drawing out the celebration of the finish as well. So Jeff.
1: Yeah. I finished I'm tough last year at like 2 AM. It was my crew, the race director and like the timer. And I was like, well, should I wait around? around And he was like, you should go get some sleep. And, um, I love that race. I love the course, but one of the main things I look for is like, is this race actually building and supporting the trail community and um, making an inclusive environment? That's also building memories in some regard. Um, And there's a lot of races out there that cost quite a bit and maybe they like give you a cool race shirt, but they don't do really anything for like the community aspect of it. Um, And Brett, some of your comments made me think about like the Euro races versus the U S races. And that's Mm -hmm. an entirely different feel but um one of my favorite things about western states was just the people out on the course and actually getting to see people and even that like lone photographer who i hadn't seen anyone for 15 or 20 minutes and they're out there like saying hi like having some type of um personable relation or like interaction is pretty key for me um so the european races are crazy because the entire towns that they run through come out and support them it's like a big you know tourism drive for those communities and I did Peña Gelosa in twenty nineteen, I think, and like two AM running through these little walled in villages. They were the aid stations had like you know five hundred plus people in them, just lined with spectators. It was so much hype. That was awesome. So I definitely agree with the the people side of things. I think there can be small races where there obviously aren't that many people, but they can still do a really good job building community and the two that come to my mind are the Jemez mountain trail run down in Los Alamos. Um, I did that race with a friend. We, we drove down, stayed, uh, stayed in like the Santa Fe area, showed up in the morning. There was like a full breakfast for everyone racing, which was awesome. Uh, just some good energy, great energy at all the aid stations. Um, and then at the finish, there was like a live band that played for like four hours as the people all kind of, finished in. They fed us all, I think kind of a late lunch dinner as well. And um, yeah, there was a t-shirt involved, but there were some cool race swag involved. That's not what I remember from that race. I remember like, wow, these race directors just put on a community event first and it happened to be a trail Mm -hmm. race. And that's my my favorite thing about, I think, trail running community and uh, what I look for in a race. Um, I could do without the race t-shirt i say as i'm wearing one um or like the the swag bag um i know that gets some people really hyped though so
0: well i'm not sure if it was you or, or brett that said it but i'll echo the comment about aid stations too and i think how important it is for whoever manages each aid station at a race to take that job super seriously we have a local race here in salt lake city the Wasatch 100, and it truly does feel like the haves and the have nots at each aid station at one. It might be that the aid station captain has taken it super seriously. They've, they've decorated the place. It's a party. There's an overflow of volunteers. There's like three vols per runner coming in and you just feel totally uplifted. And then the next aid station you get to is just totally barren. Like people are like getting out of their car from a nap to hmm. give you some M&Ms and like tailwind and then you move on. So, uh, I know Western's an easy example, but I think that Western States is a great example of uh, a race where every single aid station, it's like that person's life's work. Like they compete just to be a part of those crews and the runners are having an excellent experience each time.
1: Yeah. Same with Aravapa, like Jubilee puts on amazing events and it's not just the production of like live streams and stuff. I think running through those aid stations for the most part, they're, they're stocked with people who are excited to be there and excited to see you. And um yeah, I I have no real interest in running a flat hundred miler, but Javelina is always like pretty intriguing to me just because it looks so fun. It looks like a party on Halloween. And um there's not that many people whose idea of partying is running a hundred miles, but that is my idea. So if you want to party with me, you should hang out. <laughs>
0: Brett, you got anything else on this topic?
2: It's, yeah, kind of thinking about like the the European versus like American uh, trail races and kind of big versus small. It almost sounds like one of the like recurring themes for the U.S. trail races. Like, if you want to have a successful trail race in the U.S., the reason for you doing it better not be to make money. Yeah. Uh, Like, your why has to be different than just make money because that just doesn't work in the U S for trail racing. Cause you can't have 6,000 people in a race.
0: And I do think if you go into it with that mindset, which I think is the correct mindset, I think paradoxically you actually will make a ton of money and it will become oh, if you this try incredible, not to make money, if you, exactly. If you try to make it this, if you invest in things that don't necessarily scale to begin with, but they create memorable experiences, word of mouth, all that kind of stuff. It's it'll catch Um, Yeah.
1: And that's the other one I was going to say was the Cirque series. Like if you've done one of those events, you want to go back and do another event. Um, It's not just like the little like sponsored tent, you know, pavilion at the bottom, like the entire way up uh, Julian and his team have like, you know, people in fun kind of exciting outfits, like saying crazy things and getting you hyped up. And uh, the scene at the finish line is really high energy and, I know that's not everyone's racing, but at least for the introduction of trail running to a greater community, to me, that's the recipe for success.
0: All right, next topic here. And Brett, I know you could probably be, do an entire dissertation on this <laughs> topic, and it would be incredibly entertaining. But uh, why do some of the best ultra runners rep road shoes in trail races? So for example, Jeff Browning comes to mind, Jason Schlarp comes to mind. They have used that ultra duo, for example, at Western States and other key races. So why do they default to that instead of a quote unquote trail shoe?
2: Well, so the, the, like the first thing that I wrote down, like in probably like the simplest way I could explain it was you wear the shoe that is best for the day. Um, and like most, like a lot of ultras that people are racing, the weather is good. Like it's a dry you know, especially some of these more competitive ones, like, yeah, it might be technical or Rocky, but like it's dry. All you need is a a rubber, like you don't need aggressive lugs. You just need rubber to touch the rock. And like, that'll be tacky enough to grip. And if, if you think you need more than that without falling, then like that's just a trail running like technique thing more than, you know, the footwear. Um, you know, so that, that was kind of the first thing. was like, yeah, you wear what's best for the day. Because I'm sure it's not like, you know, like Rob Carr won Western States in the Nike Lunar Racer, you know, was one of the more popular, Nike's more popular uh, marathon racing flats. And This was when Rob was running for North Face. Um, you know, Tony Krupiczko was, he had run a ton in the New Balance 1400 racing flat and some, some other like even more minimal shoes. I think that was what the Skaggs brothers had run in a ton as well. Um, and I think so much of that just comes down to wearing one, what's comfortable and what works best for you on race day. You know, I, I bet Schlarb and, you know, Jeff Browning, I bet they're training in trail shoes and they probably have six or eight different models of shoes that they could wear on race day. But, you know, once you know the weather and like what's coming out it's like, oh, okay, will this last the distance of the race? Yes. Like, will is it light and breathable for most, you know, warmer weather? Like, yes. Like, is it comfortable? Yes. Like, Okay. There, that's my best choice then. Um, and who does I mean, maybe, maybe there's like a, like a macho stigma that comes to it too, because I mean like 15 years ago, trail shoes were just like garbage. Um, so like, why would you even wear them anyways? Um, and maybe, maybe that's just stuck a little bit. Like it's, Maybe they just think it's really cool to wear road shoes, but I think I think there's a little bit more reason to it than just that. Jeff, what do you think?
1: I just had a thought of Matt Carpenter in his full Fila kit with his Fila Road Runners on, and like that dude still never been beaten two of the most competitive yeah. races in American history. Um, yeah, which Fila is a pretty sweet brand. Um, <laughs> I I prefer road shoes for most races. Um, there's certainly some that I would use trail shoes for and I talk about this with on uh running quite a bit as like we talk through shoe design and I like a lighter shoe and I feel like often the uppers for trail shoes are either reinforced with additional webbing or there's Gore-Tex or they just add weight and bulk and I kind of take take the I guess um somewhat privileged stance of like if I raise a hundred mile on this shoe, I'm likely going to ruin it by the end of the race. Like my stride's going to be such that no matter what the shoe is, it's going to be toast. And I'm going to choose the shoe that has the super light conforming, comfortable upper that has no hard ridges and isn't going to interact with my you know toes in an uncomfortable way. Um, and I'm going to choose a little bit more cushion because that still provides protection over, you know, uh, um, trail shoe with hard rubber or a rock plate or something um i had that interaction with schlarb and, uh, and browning where like i was racing in the ultra four or the um the lone peak four and they were both in the duo and i was like this is back in 2018 i was like why are you guys in that shoe and they were like this is like a flat dirt trail race like there's no need for traction i was like dang and ever since then, like that conversation has definitely influenced my decision on races, Um, even for I'm tough, which was a really challenging, rocky race. Um, I raced the final like 55 miles in a road shoe because it's more comfortable. And if I have foot discomfort, it's gonna be more upsetting to me than like potentially having, you know, uh, a little like slip on a loose gravelly section of the course
0: is this quite the narrative violation of the conversation we're having here about road versus trail? Are there marketers at all these trail companies that are going to be losing sleep of what we're saying here?
2: Probably. Mm, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I think Dep- that probably depends like, on the price difference. Yeah. I mean, I bet a lot of these trail people are like, damn it. Yeah, I know. Like, I know the road shoes are still better. We're trying to make a trail shoe that is a road shoe, but is a trail shoe, but we haven't figured it out yet. Um, you know, I think, yeah, yeah Jeff, kind of like what you said, like traction is not as big of an issue as people kind of play it on to be. It's like if you're wiping out on the trail, it's probably because you need to practice running trail more so than your gear failing you. It's like you can't blame your mountain bike for why you crashed. Like there's such small, there's such a small number of people out there that are so good at riding a mountain bike that the gear fails them. Cause they're like, I pushed the bike too hard. It's like, no, it's usually poor technique, poor decision-making. You didn't put, you know, the bike in the right spot. Like that's the same reason for why most people fall on the trails. Um, and you know, there's definitely exceptions to like when it actually rains out or, you know when it's humid on the east coast and you actually need to but like you know i was like why why do, rock climbing shoes are just a piece of rubber underneath they don't have a big crazy lug pattern like it must be the actual rubber that sticks to the rock um yeah you know i mean yeah like uh uh jamil's brother uh nick curry he was wearing an adidas like classic racing flat at hard rock uh just this year um which I, I saw some pictures pop up and I think you tagged me on Twitter on one of them. Uh, but yeah, like he, he, as far as I can tell, he wore one pair for the entire race and you know, for him it's probably just comfortable. Like he probably feels the most nimble in that shoe. And if you feel good in that shoe, your chances of falling or running into problems are going to go down more so than just buying whatever on paper it says is the best for that day.
0: Well, anecdotally, uh, I, I wore the Hoka Clayton Two for all 100 miles of the 2018 Western States 100, and I had a great time.
2: Did you get any blisters under your arch? No. That's amazing.
0: That's <laughs> that was, that was a great shoe, say by about the way. That
1: shoe. <laughs> <laughs> I think the the companies that are making the hybrid shoes, um, the Challenger ATR is like one that comes to mind that you know is more of a road feel of a shoe but has some in, like intentionally mapped or placed traction. Um, like to me, that's almost the most road shoe or trail shoe, like I want, um, you know, I think some of the designs I've been seeing from on, have gotten me really excited, but you know, Solomon's always had some of their shoes with just like two millimeter lugs. And it's just, the, it's the right rubber. Um, when you yeah. have the right rubber, whether you're in New Hampshire's white mountains or in Moab, it's going to work on the rock and if you don't have the right rubber and you even have traction, if it's, yeah, if there's any slickness or uh, not enough grip, that rubber acts almost as like a lubricant and can be even spookier. Um, But yeah, it's, it's a good question. And we'll, we're only seeing more and more kind of road technology dive into the trail trail shoes with P backs and carbon plates and, who knows how that'll actually, uh, translate on some of the rockier trail races. But if, you know, if road shoes are having that much of it or making that much of a difference in the marathon, when runners have really long strides and are only running 26 miles, like who knows how that translates to something like a trail race where your stride is a lot shorter and you're running a lot further. Um, you might not have the same rocker and cadence, uh, or might actually be making that difference for just way more steps. So I think, I think we'll see a lot of um, shoe technology changes in the last, in the next couple of years.
0: Well, let's go to the uh, next topic here. I'm not exactly sure how to phrase this, but clearly there is a camp in the ultra running world that prefers to focus media attention and competition on the Western States golden ticket series and related races there's another camp that tends to invest most of their energy in the USATF world. So like the 50 K championships, et cetera, I personally think, and I think you, both of you might agree the USATF world gets a lot less coverage, maybe less prominent athletes. Um, but maybe the question here is, should it be the case given what USATF represents that they should be at the forefront by default or does it make sense that we're having this jockeying for prominence in the community in terms of what races are important and what athletes are important? And I don't know, Brett, you want to go first?
2: Um, Yeah. I mean, should, should USATF just automatically be like placed number one because it's USATF? I mean, I don't necessarily think so. Um, You know, I think we see that in, say the track and field world, but that's because, you know, like Nike basically owns USATF with how much money they've put forward towards making sure the USATF has a stronghold basically over track and field in the U S that it's, it would be really, really difficult for say another private track league to come up and be better than, than what there currently is in the like, U.S. track and field world. Um, fortunately, unfortunately, I guess I'm not sure it could go both ways. That didn't happen in trail. Um, whereas there are other organizations that do have race series and races that are perhaps more desirable to go to than the top USATF events or even like the world championships that you go to via USATF qualifying races um yeah like does that make it better or worse i don't know what do do you think
0: jeff
1: yeah i you know i think that there's obviously a lot of politics involved with usatf and the mut board of usatf um like i know certain folks try to vie for positions or representation on that board to be the like, you know, regional rep so they can get one of their trail races to be a national championship trail, trail race. And if it's a national champion race, uh, chip race, then maybe more elite runners will come to it. And I, I kind of like, I don't want to hold UTMB as the, as the high regard either. I think both US, USATF and kind of US, uh, UTMB have their own issues, but if USATF were to decide to make the 50 K trail championships Speed Goat, it would build USATF's presence in, you know, in our sport. Um, I've raced two USATF championships just by happenstance. One year, Bandera was the USATF 100K championship, and Moab Trail Marathon is typically the championship. And those are both great races. Um, but if I were USATF, I'd be looking at the media production that Broken Arrow is doing, that AeroVape is doing, that these... Um, you know, certain race directors are doing and want to partner with them to actually have more attention to this sport. And we're just coming off world championships. I tried to tune in as much as I could. It's clear that when USATF like wants to uh, participate on the world stage, obviously track and field is an Olympic sport. It's a totally different beast than trail running, but like they can put on a, a heck of a production and has anybody watched the 50K Trail Championships in the last 10 years? Like there's there's certain races and the structure that they operate under um, for choosing championship teams, deciding that you know, this maybe more minuscule race is a qualifier, and the couple athletes who choose to go and run that race end up qualifying to represent the US at World Trail Championships to me, it just seems like there's a lot of flaws and a lot of ways in which the MUT part of USATF is, is kind of failing to represent, um, the U S trail running community and not really putting a lot of energy into changing it. Um, so I don't know if it's, it's new energy or, um, or what, what needs to happen. But I do think like, if I'm looking at a, 2023 calendar. I'll look at the golden trail series for Solomon. I'll look at the golden ticket races. I'll probably, um, check and see what some of the larger race directors in the country are doing, but it's so hard to find what the championship races are for USATF to begin with, even in like late January, early February, when you are trying to make a plan that like sometimes I question how some of these athletes actually know where to go when to go <laughs> and to get on these teams. Cause it'd be cool to represent the U S don't get me wrong.
0: So you, like you mentioned speed and broken arrow as potential venues. I would be so curious to know what goes into the process of venue selection for these events, how they choose them and then who's choosing them. Like, are they just sitting in a boardroom one day, like two years before the race date and saying we're going to yes. choose. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Just, to me yeah that's that is such a consequential decision and i'm surprised that uh, for their own benefit too they wouldn't want to choose the most marquee clearly popular clearly media focused venue/race in the country for each of those
2: events so that shocked so like that that kind of happened on accident this summer with uh the world team selection coming from the broken arrow 52k this year cuz there was yeah. supposed to be a USATF 50K trail championships in Corvallis, Oregon this summer, but the like the same weekend as uh, world uh, championships yeah, for track and, and field. And, yeah. And like, yeah. And just, I don't know if they, so that was, that was just supposed to be an entire race on its own. Like I, I heard that they just had like permitting problems and all this stuff. but It's just like, why would you try and make another race? Like, yeah. Why wasn't it always just ever? Yeah, we're going to piggyback off Broken Arrow because, like, well, now, now we we got to we have a much better team going to Worlds because you qualified at Broken Arrow versus the USATF 50k Championships that wasn't Broken Arrow. You know, everyone was already going to Broken Arrow.
0: Let me ask a question. And Jeff, maybe this is in your contracts with on, for example, is there any incentive for you to compete at any of these races like these USATF championship races? Do you get any bonuses in your contract? I mean, maybe you should speak generally because you probably don't want to disclose what's in your contract, but <laughs> do you hear athletes talk about like the bonuses they'll get from USATF races?
1: Yeah. Um, they're like, if you make a trail championship team, like, you know, there's, there's likely some performance incentive, um, if you, you know, win a a US championship. Um and like I think there's there's certain runners who like do look more at like what what races this year could I win money at? And um you see some of those runners now showing up to Cirque Series races because the Cirque series is paying. Um you see those runners, yeah, showing up to USATF championships. Some of them are quite competitive. I'm not saying the Moab Trail Marathon is like a a weak field. That's typically really competitive. But the 50k trail champs, or you know, variably the 100k trail champs. Like, if you know you're going to get you know a payout by going there, and you also know it's not going to be that competitive, and then you get to represent your team, you know, your nation at at worlds. Why wouldn't you do that? Um, And that kind of like gets to There's amazing trail runners that consistently represent the U S like Andy Wacker's phenomenal. Joe Gray's phenomenal. Like David Sinclair is qualified for a number of these teams. He's super strong on the women's side. Like our women have been incredibly effective at world championships for, um, you know, for, for mountain races. Um, but you're never getting like on the national scale, you're not really getting to compete against the stiffest competition um i think loon is a good one loon mountain race is a really competitive race and they've run that like people know they can go out for the mount washington road race and tag on loon and they're gonna have like a really stout you know couple weeks of competition with whiteface there too like if that's the type of race you want to do that schedule makes a lot of sense um having the 50k trail champs in corvallis like it's a good thing that didn't happen because it didn't make a ton of sense. Mm
0: -hmm. Maybe this is a whole debate for another episode of long run archives, but the person in me that is always concerned about the plight of athletes is wondering if you do make these teams, how responsible are you for the plane tickets? What kind of gear are you getting for these races? Are you getting access to coaches? Like does USATF play the role of, what a brand would play, for example, getting their athletes ready for UTMB. I'm super fascinated about that. Maybe one of you two already knows what that world looks like, but um, it would be very interesting to dive into that.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, I I have personally never made a USA team. I probably will not. Why? But, um, it, I mean, it sounds like the funding on the trail side of USATF is lacking and anyone who makes the us team is probably going to be less likely to speak out and be like i just got my usa kit by the way here's a whole bunch of things that suck about me going to worlds in thailand you're not really going to hear that that much so um yeah that's kind of a tough like
0: i'll take that uh, bullet that's,
2: that's like a tough question to get to the bottom of but i think we're we're going to have to do a little more digging in regards to like what each athlete does exactly get versus like, say making the world team as uh, a track athlete. Um, You know, like, 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 you know, you make the world team for track, you know, and it's, it's the same USA kit as for trail, you know, like it's a Nike kit. It says USA, it's really fancy. You get all the warmups and stuff. But like uh, I saw on, I think it was Courtney Wayman's Instagram. She just signed with on uh athletic club and uh, she runs the steeplechase on also sent her like all this sick custom on world's team gear as you know, like a, we're supporting you just as much as USATF might be supporting you for worlds. Like she got cool. She got AirPods with the on logo on the back of that. Jeff, I don't know if you have any of those. I didn't get yet. those. Oh, Okay. <laughs> But I mean, it was just like like that, that that sort of thing to see from the other sponsors as well. Uh, it was really cool.
1: Yeah, Jeff. I've got one more small, small uh, word before I think maybe we bump onto the next one. But um, I was gonna say, I know a couple folks who have qualified for uh, world teams and have gone there to run who are not sponsored. So if you have a sponsorship and that sponsorship comes with a travel stipend, that's great you're likely going to get your trip to Thailand paid for. But a couple of years ago, I had some friends qualify, I think when they were in Ireland or Great Britain um, and they're, yeah, they were basically paying for their, their own vacation over there um, to go and race and represent team USA. And um, it's, it, it just seems like in, in a lot of ways, the, the trail contingent of USATF could uh, could hit the mark maybe more with what the greater audience of trail running wants, but uh, like it's never surprising that like the Italians and the French and the Spaniards and uh, like are really really strong at at worlds and and the US like we hold our own a couple times. Uh, obviously, you know we've got a couple athletes who are continually dominant, but um, in in Spain the year I ran Peña Colosa, that was part of the world or the Spanish national cup. And like the elite runners from Spain with the exception, maybe of Killian were like, they're on the line. And it was really cool to be like, wow, I'm running against like Spain's, you know, like a depth of this field of, of Spanish ultra runners in a way that I don't think I've ever run against in the U S um, having like national races or a national race series that like really means something. And, People wanna be there and and you know compete against their nation, not necessarily just make a world team and go on, is is something that maybe we're we're lacking a bit.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's go to the next topic here, and it's the perfect offshoot to this whole USATF debate. There is a whole class of athletes that have decided to make their mark very squarely within that USATF world. One of the most recognizable ones is Joe Gray. I think everybody here is fascinated to see what would happen if he ever departed from that world, even if just for a temporary moment to compete against the likes of Killian Journay and David Magnini and Walmsley and just all of these other people on his level. So uh, I guess the question I have for both of you is why do you think he hasn't done that so far? Or conversely, why athletes like the ones that I just mentioned haven't met him in his world and will it ever happen? Because I see, you know, I mean, father time is encroaching. That guy's 38 years old. So will this ever happen?
2: So I guess the one thing I will say is it has happened, actually. Uh, Joe Gray's run Sierra's and all like five times. Um, but uh, his, so he, his, he, his best finish at Sierra's in all was second in 2014. Um, wow. Okay. I am got, so sorry. He got 11th in 2018, but then outside of Sierra and I'm pretty sure as far as I can see, it seems like the only other times he raced in Europe were for like world championships. Um, and, and it, you know, I, I, as far as I can see, he hasn't gone over since like 2018 or 2019, but one thing that's very unique about Joe Gray's racing career, which is very, the only other person really that comes to mind that did well up until like a couple of weeks ago this uh, kind of style was uh, Dakota Jones and that Joe Gray's average race distance as his careers progress has actually gotten shorter. You know, it seems like most people start short and go long. Joe has a, you know, a bunch of 50 Ks and marathons that he's won and run really well. But in the last like five years, he's barely done any races over two hours with most of them being under an hour. And Um, you know shy of some VKs I was just kind of wondering like is it worth going to Europe for a race that might take 45 minutes and if and also like for those that short of races what ones in Europe are are that much more competitive than the ones that he's doing here in the U.S. you know like Sierra's and all's what under two hours but like Mont Blanc Marathon and Zagama, like those are pretty long races for what, you know, in comparison to the races Joe has gone. So, you know, I don't see why he would go over to Europe to do those when he's not training for three hours or two and a half hours or things like that. Um,
0: but Finn, I, I want I'd to apologize. Like to I,
1: I think I misled you on the Sierras and all But I I do remember because he raced Killian in 2014 at Sierras and all and, and Killian did win and, I have so much respect for Joe. Um, Yeah. I wrote like an 1800 word first, you know um, profile on him. He's, he's such an amazing competitor and I think a really awesome role model, but it is interesting. Like he's got, you know, what, 20 us national championships uh, titles now, and he's got a couple world championship titles, but um, we've seen the, the Joe gray, Andy Wacker show a lot. Um, And the, I wonder like if he just is so focused on like winning another national championship, or if he like kind of gets bored racing the same people a lot. And Andy's an amazing competitor. Um, Joe put down a crazy time on the Boulder Skyline Traverse for Solomon Golden Trail Series and uh, qualified for that. I don't think he went and ran it though.
0: Gotcha. The, well, d- the finals. Jeff, I gotta say one thing first. Uh, you gotta understand, this is like Ron Burgundy. I read everything on the teleprompter, so if you tell me that Joe Grace never runs here at all, I'm gonna say that live. <laughs> uh,
1: my apologies, Ron. Um, but yeah, I I think there's there's a lot like you know there's a lot of arguments that can be made for Joe being the best you know kind of shorter distance trail and mountain runner in like U.S. history, and then there's arguments made that like other folks go and race the same courses and run quite a bit faster than him. And um, it's not often that we see him line up against a lot of the other, um, a lot of the other top talent either in the, in the U S or the world. Cause again, those world championship races, um, I don't think they're, they're always attracting the, the, the most elite runners. Um, yeah. Sierra's and all, I think, I think just seeing even having, having Joe uh, go toe-to-toe with, with some of those guys anywhere um, would be really cool to see because I do believe he's, he's a you know, one-in-a-million talent and he's super fast. Um, but he's an example of someone who just like committed to that USATF route and maybe in another country where their running organization uh, promotes, promotes the trail running more um, he'd be the most you
2: know well-known name in the sport, but that's mm. not
1: necessarily the case
2: here. Mm. Totally. Yeah. And like, I mean, I'm just also completely speculating here, but I mean, who knows what could be in his, you know, Hoka contract regarding uh, the races that he runs. I mean, he's been with Hoka for a number of years and probably has a fair amount of say in regards to like negotiating, you know, bonuses and how he does at some of these races. So um, you know, that could play a factor into it as well if, you know, like hills pay the bills.
0: Yeah, this isn't, by the way, I just looked up his bio. Apparently he was voted the greatest mountain runner of all time in some sort of poll through the world mountain running association, which is very interesting. I gotta, I gotta have him on the podcast at some point. Cause admittedly I'm pretty checked out of the sub ultra scene and, um, but that's interesting. That's that's a that's a bold. I mean, it very well could be the case. That's a bold statement, though.
2: I want to know how many people voted.
0: Well, let's go. Let's go to the next topic here. Um, the question is: How can specialty retail contribute to the growth of competitive trail running? And I guess there's an addendum here: Can it grow without the help of specialty retail? So, where does I guess where where does specialty retail fit into the equation here? And Jeff, you want to start?
1: Yeah. um, We have a sweet specialty retail spot here in Carbondale called Independence Run and Hike. We do like Thursday night group runs there. They're awesome. I don't have any nutrition sponsor and whatnot. And they're always really generous with helping me out with like food and stuff. And that costs a lot. So I feel like in my example, uh, you know, in Carbondale, I think Independence Run and Hike plays a really cool part of our community and um and support for kind of local athletes here um i think on the the bigger page like we don't see as many um you know race directors directly affiliated with specialty retail stores in their region uh or in their area and that's like i i always wonder at like you know trail races why there isn't more of a Kind of retail presence from local run shops. Um, often it's just that title sponsor, but I think there's certainly a role can, that can be played by um, local specialty run uh, stores in terms of like grassroots support for local athletes. And without you know independent help, I probably you know wouldn't wouldn't have signed up for as many races and whatnot. Um, whereas the evolving landscape of kind of specialty run I think is also really interesting. And, you know, in the same way we see Strava stepping in to have like more of a presence at trail races and like sponsoring trail races, I'm surprised we don't see more um, either chain or specialty retail, you know, independent shops wanting to step in to have like that, you know, this live broadcast is brought to you by mm. um, whoever. So I think they're an important part of the community. Um, the, the chain specialty retail stores, I think are the ones that have the most, um, kind of opportunity and also responsibility to help grow, um, trail running. We can say say fleet feet
2: on this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. We're allowed to say fleet feet. (laughs) We're not going to get in trouble. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Um, they just acquired Boulder Running Company. Like there's a lot of these larger uh, specialty retail run stores that, you know, maybe were that focal point for a running community um, that are being you know acquired or um, kind of brought under the arm of maybe an REI or uh, mm-hmm. different, different growing giant. So if that's happening, like, I guess that's business, but it'd be really cool if those uh, retail giants were still supporting the community in the ways that independent run shops were.
0: I know this is a weird angle to take this conversation in or a direction, but I've always thought it would be so cool if runners had the resources and the community support to run for like their local city or region as opposed to a brand. Like imagine if you could say, I'm just representing Salt Lake City or I'm representing uh, Boulder or I'm representing Portland, Oregon. And I think if that were the case, it would require a ton of support and backing from all of the local shoe stores. But that world, instead of like Hoka, Solomon, Ultra, Adidas, and to me, that would be so. Pow- I know that like reeks of like nationalism and localism and all that kind of stuff. But like, uh, just th- there's more pride to it. I think I don't know, and I feel like r- stores could step in and, and, and be the partner uh, to make that happen. It would take a lot, but that'd be cool in my mind.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I've I'm like small, like special. I'm as specialty retail as they get. I mean, I got my first job at Fleet Feet when I was like, I, I couldn't drive a car. I think I was like 15 and a half. Um, like maybe just before my 16th birthday. So like, yeah, being trained by like Fleet Feet, how to do shoes and all that stuff. And then having worked at Rogue Valley Runners for so many years, I mean, it's uh, definitely, I mean, I've seen like firsthand so many times the importance that uh, a specialty shoe store has within its local community. And it's not so much just for the sake of selling shoes, but it's to be a hub uh, it's to be a hub for all the runners in the area to have a place that they can come down to and just know that whoever employee is working there is going to say, Hey, and you at least have someone to just nerd out about running with, you know, that's so much of it is, is that more so than anything. And then kind of the, you're like recurring price that you pay is occasionally buying some shoes from the store. And, um, you know there a couple of years ago, you know, probably like 2017, 2016. A lot of Run Specialty was going through a bit of a crisis with a lot of these brands, uh, still trying to figure out online retailers and the e commerce side of the game. And you know, Hoka had more Amazon accounts than they even really knew of, uh, at, at a point, and it was driving the prices of their shoes down so much that it Hoka like almost went to the the dark side in that it was like, oh, you can always find a pair on sale. And their corporate realized, no, we can't let this happen. It would be a disaster because all the small running shoe stores wouldn't be able to compete. If they go out of business, there's no one to like, there's no store then where new customers could come into and just talk to an employee about Hoka or try one on. And then you have a really hard time securing new customers. So they set out to basically eliminate as many of these Amazon accounts as possible, and you know have done a really good job of essentially controlling their prices and not letting people, you know, sell their shoes for too cheap. So that way, smaller stores can still exist. Um, And there's been other companies that have tried really hard to keep online prices uh, in check and that kind of awareness by some of the bigger brands and acknowledging, like we understand how important these small retailers are. Um, That was like a really nice, just kind of a nice, like, not like a wake up call, but just nice bit of assurance to hear from these larger brands being like, no, we, we do want you to succeed. It's not just about selling shoes and making money. Cause you know, kind of like going back to directing a race. Like we understand it's about the experience and the people you meet and who you talk to and the group runs and all that stuff that all goes into uh you know the, the particular shoe that you end up being in
0: i think we got time for one more topic here and and jeff let's have you leave with this one um what are some more stories in the content space like when you think of billy yang and what solomon's doing and adidas and ethan newberry and just all the content creators in the sport what are some more stories you would like to see elaborated on or just ones that you think are new but deserving to be in the space
1: yeah i i started thinking about this just because i rewatched some of the old killian's quest videos and was like wow this is pretty sweet and there's been some really great i think uh running content that has gotten i think the core group of runners uh, or trail and ultra runners really fired up and then obviously something like the the Barclays video um got a much wider audience, um, fired up. And I, I truly was like wondering like what, what content, you know, what stories are, are being told right now. And in some ways, like, I guess I just watched the free trail production of Dylan's, you know, hard rock race. Um, like if, if there was a Courtney's quest, I would be watching like every episode Solomon put out. And I, I think they set a pretty cool precedent. Um, I'm also a skier and in the ski space too, with Solomon free ski TV of like telling athlete stories through a video model that actually, you know, resonated and got a good following. And in the ski space, Cody Townsend's, you know, 50 project is currently, um, currently doing that. And just had me wondering like, you know, Wahoo, Hoka, maybe Wahoo put out like a thing on Jim's approach to UTMB um, what, what stories are being told right now? And, um, yeah, what, like, I guess, what could brands do better? Is there, is there a hole in kind of our, I guess, content, um, where like, there are, there are some really great running podcasts. There's some really great running journalism. Uh, where are the, you know, great kind of video content being made around running right now?
0: I'll give you one idea and then Brett, I'll go to you. Uh, I had a guy on the podcast about six months ago, highly recommend the episode. It was, uh, Sam Parsons. Who's one of the co-founders of 10 man elite over in the track and field world. Oh, one and, bit about Sam, yeah, congratulations
2: sir. to Sam for competing at the world championships in the five. k. Right. Uh, he represented Germany and he did make the 5k final. So you have someone who was on the podcast that made the world championship 5k final.
0: Hey, there we go. That's super cool. That's, that's super cool. But he said something, cause I asked him the same question. I'm like, you know, just putting your marketing hat on your media cap on for a second. What do you think is missing in this world? Knowing what you know about trail. And he wanted to see more stories about the disaffected, disillusioned collegiate runners that feel trapped in the system. They're on like that track and field treadmill and they, they, like just like lose all interest in running, but then like serendipitously, they had this amazing experience on the trails and they're totally hooked. And they realize that like, they've just been revived and they participated in like the Walk 100 or something like that. And all of a sudden they're signed up for five more races. And then all of a sudden they're signed by Hoka. And then all of a sudden they're at UTMB. And I'm not sure that that story exists yet. I mean, I know there's examples of people like Sage Kennedy and, and Rob Carr who kind of took that route. And I mean, even Walmsley in a sense, but I think that story and a series around that or a movie around that would speed up the process of recruiting even more collegiate athletes right out the gate from college to our sport immediately, as opposed to this, you know, mode where maybe they graduate, they try their hand on the roads the track for five to 10 years. And then in their like their thirties, they come to trails. So he's like, make that content because that might just by default, send them to our world as opposed to, um, you know, missing out on their twenties, basically in our sport.
1: I've got two examples that come to mind. One is Allie McLaughlin, my teammate with on like, Ali was one of the best runners in the country, her freshman year of college. She's still the best runner in the country in a lot of ways, but you know, she was fifth at NCAAs, her freshman year of college. Hmm. Um, and then struggled with a lot of injury and what she just broke the mountain marathon record by like 10 minutes or something. Like I want, I want on to make that story. Um, Ashley Brosevin, like when I was a high schooler, Ashley Brosevin was a high schooler and like winning, you know, like footlocker championships. And like, I'm certain that her life story is pretty interesting. And I think it's probably full of some really high peaks and some pretty low lows. And, uh, it's, cool to see her show up and kick ass and like that name has been with me since what i was 17 years old um so there's there's certain runners like that yeah i've i've followed for more than half my life now that are still actually running you know in a lot of the same races i'm i'm racing in and i think there's a lot of uh you know gaps in their story that i'm i'm not you know really sure uh, how they got to where they are, but um, those those would be really cool. Uh, I I tend to like, yeah, want to almost hear the other story of like, like I don't know, like one day I just started running. <laughs> uh, the Forrest Gump story, I guess, is what I really want a brand
2: to uh, to nail down. How about you, Brett? Yeah, so. This I guess this is just like to spark additional thoughts. So uh this year at the Tour de France, there was uh, like Netflix was out there and covered the whole race uh, oh. for three weeks because they are making a documentary off of this year's tour, which I'm so glad they did. I can't wait to watch that because this is one of the most exciting tours that I've seen like in my whole life. But um I would love to see. And while theirs was... I actually don't know if Netflix, I imagine Netflix probably did have a whole bunch of crews come and follow teams in the buildup to the race, as well as the race itself. I would love to see an example of that happen. Say like, like we were saying, like following a team, like Adidas, Terex, or Hoka, you know, leading up to Western States or UTMB. Um, that maybe isn't necessarily on the shoulders of the actual company. Um, you know, like, adidas hasn't you know like the last podcast i listened to of uh, the adidas trail team manager was like we're not a media company you know like we work with our athletes first like if adidas then hired out maybe not necessarily netflix but maybe this is a maybe this is something that falls into like outside magazines uh kind of realm um to get a crew to follow the lead up of you know, handful of athletes yeah. leading up to a big race and then the actual race itself. And a lot of people were saying for this Netflix career, the tour They're like, Oh, well, when it comes out next year, I already know how the race went and I already know what happens. Why would I watch that? The point is not so much for that person because on Netflix, there's a very small number of people that will actually know what happened. It's for all the new fans that they are about to create Uh, when they watch this for the first time, um, and the people who already know what happened, they're going to watch it again anyways and be like, Oh yeah, that was so cool. Even though I already knew what happened, that could very well be the case for just one couple episode series leading up to UTMB or Western States or, you know, any of the big races, like it goes on you watch it. And everyone's like, wow, I didn't know trail running was a thing, but I watched this and now it's actually kind of cool. That's, that's what I would that's love a great to one. see in the storytelling uh, mm. realm of this sport. Um, and that, you know, that'll, that'll build the whole sport.
0: Brett, you made me think of like hard knocks if for anyone that's watched hard knocks on HBO, yeah. like football, NFL preseason. I think there could be a hard knock series for a bunch of athletes that have committed to trying to make one of these shoe brand teams, like Adidas Terex. like maybe Adidas is like, look, we only have spots for three people next year. If you go through this gauntlet of like three or four races over the next five months and you place highly, uh, we'll consider you. So it's like a walk-on kind Dude, of if show. If there was
2: try, if there was Adidas tryouts and then they had a race and it was just like, if you win, we'll sign you for one year guaranteed. Um, that would be so. That would be so so cool. I mean, I would <laughs> not only would I try and race that, I would be glued to my screen watching it because. Yeah, then you have all of these unsponsored people just going for it, Um, which there was a thing uh, in, on like, it was like the Zwift World Championships on like internet, home home office, bicycle racing. It was like the winner of it was going to get a year contract by one of the pro teams for like their, you know, actual professional team that rides outside. And this was a couple of years ago, but one of the guys who won that spot, you know, three years prior, he was riding on their tour team a couple of years ago. I'm like, that's just, that's so awesome. Yeah, that's any crazy. Other,
0: any other thoughts, Jeff?
2: No, I think,
1: uh, I think that would be, that would be really, uh, really cool to see. Um, I like the long storytelling, but my my housemate is, a uh, filmmaker and I know that like a really high quality seven minute piece might take him seven months to make. Um, and the the cost and production involved with filmmaking is really, really high. So while I kind of hear you, Brett, on like the, you know, Adidas shouldn't make this. They should hire out someone to do it. One of the things I thought was so compelling about uh, like the Killian's Quest like, videos was, like, a lot of it was him with a GoPro. And then he had, like, a film crew with him, following him and, like, filming him and stuff. But uh they were able to do it, I think, on a budget that made sense. Um And, you know, I know, like, Billy Yang's talented enough that, like, I'm sure it just, like, it costs so much to make the quality of production that you want to make. Um It's one of my favorite things about Unbreakable. It's just, like... Just hanging in Jeff Rowe's house in Alaska. It's like, all right, here we are. We're in this guy's house. We're telling this story. He's gonna race this race in a couple months, um, but low, low cost, uh, really inspiring and um, like relatable
2: content. Mm. Yeah, how do we tell any current or aspiring filmmakers that it doesn't have to have all the fancy? transitions and beautiful cinematography and all that stuff that like really increases the price as well as the time and just like give me some like like one of my favorite running videos on the internet is that couple minutes that jamil threw together from the north face 50 of hayden hawks and zach miller racing each other where it's just him like hauling the mail trying to keep up with him and just the raw audio of of Zach sounding like he's at like a hot dog eating contest, just like so much air is going down his throat. Um, like that's one of my favorite running videos. And it was, it was just the simplicity in it. I thought it was so like that told all the story I, I needed to hear.
1: That made me think of just like the work that Peter Maskemo and Ali McLaughlin and Tate Pullman are doing with American trail running association. Like it's so impressive to see Allie out there sprinting with like the leaders in her you know race while holding a uh like you know gimbal and like getting this footage and I don't know what their plans are with like some of this uh some of the race footage that I've seen them getting but like yeah I think they could tell a really cool story I am also certain they're probably very underfunded um, mm. but they do amazing work just the the three of them as a oh, yeah. as a and small then you... team trying to create some relatable content
2: yeah and then you immediately see them like i saw them at broken arrow like you know tate was around running around filming stuff and then like soon as the race goes off and the runners disappear he's like tucked in a corner on his computer like already uploading everything and working on it just like outside in the village yeah. up at palisades I'm, like, so much respect for those yeah.
0: guys yeah awesome well last thing i'll say here i think we love identifying business opportunities in the world of trail running and i think that if you are an up-and-coming video creator It's not a bad idea to try to embed yourself with uh, these types of athletes in your community and just start putting out content Um, because I think we'd all love to see brands be on the ground more with their athletes, putting out these YouTube videos and whatnot. But um, I mean, Jeff, you just painted a picture of all the resource constraints that exist. So for any indie creators out there that want to go do this in their communities, I think that you could probably just DM one of these athletes and they would be stoked to be followed on a run with a camera and get some like, primo footage you know running single track in the wasatch or something so um just wanted to say that uh guys this has been super fun i think we covered a lot of awesome ground jeff it's been a pleasure to have you on we'll have to have you on for another archives episode down the road because we got to less than half of your list but um yeah thank you so much for the contributions and and the ideas to chat about
1: absolutely nice chatting with you brett nice chatting with you finn and um yeah, I'm still riding the high from world champs for track and field. So <laughs> like I want all the, all the running content right now.
0: Brett, you got any parting thoughts?
2: Um, Yeah. I mean, we still got, we still got the late summer and fall of racing. I mean, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of fun races that are still on the calendar. Um, Yeah. Kind of like Jeff said, like, yeah, definitely still on like, I've watched so much track. the last 10 days and then even when i'm not watching track i was watching like sidious meg like they went live and podcasted before and after every single session and like shout out to sidious meg for all the work that they did um they're like yeah they're, they're they're gonna be the one to like take down nbc in the track and field world and it's gonna be awesome um they did such a cool job covering worlds um, really inspiring for sure.
0: Jeff, any final words?
2: I'll say, I guess, my highlight from
1: world champs, and there was a lot, but was uh, Luis Grijalva coming in fourth in the 5K. a um, oh, sweet. NAU runner, oh, nice. Guatemala absolutely crushed it. Like, I think qualifying for the championship race was pretty cool. And then he was, you know, tenths of a second away from a of a um, world championship medal. So I'm still like, so jazzed. I don't know, Luis, I followed him for a while and uh, I think his story is really cool. And if you don't, don't follow along or haven't seen that race, go, go check it out on YouTube. Cause it's really spectacular.
0: Right on. My parting thought is just, I am riding the Stoke from this past weekend, speed goat 50 K here in the central Wasatch range. First year as a UTMB event went off, Mostly without a hitch, I think. Carl's the man. Great fields. Uh, Jennifer Lichter is the real deal. She came back after going off course like three miles, fell back to 11th after being in first all day, clawed her way back on the toughest part of the course to a second-place finish. And if you've run that race before and you know where she got dropped around Pacific Mine, all she had was like 15 miles and 7K avert in front of her. And she past nine people in that process or eight people to get to second behind Addie Bracey so incredible performance her stock is very high at the moment in our sport and um, I'm just stoked so yeah. yeah if
1: she had if she had won I would have beat you in the fantasy picks
0: well that's the other <laughs> oh, thing I gotta say I, I, <laughs> so I, I probably did admit yeah yes so I, I do also have to say fourth place in fantasy free trail so I'm feeling good about that too um no seriously jeff this has been awesome brett good to see you, as always we'll be back again hopefully next month or in september and uh jeff seriously we'll have to have you on again this has been this has been sweet
2: nice talking with you guys see you